Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. The Therapy is a Christian podcast is all things mental health and Christ. We specifically talk about how mental health and God are merged together to foster growth, healing, and making mental health a normal conversation. I'm your host, Roz and Renee, and welcome to the show. All right. Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Therapy is a Christian podcast. I'm your host, Roz and Renee. Welcome to another episode of the show. Hello, you all. I hope that you enjoyed last week's episode. I am super, super excited to be bringing an interview to you today as I'm going to be talking to an amazing, amazing woman. Uh, Her name is Takia Blackman. She is an amazing podcaster. She is a mental health advocate. I'm going to let her tell you all the things that that she has done. But before we get into that, how we got connected. So Takia has a podcast, and I remember um, listening to her for the first time when she was on the Blessed and Bossed Up podcast with Tatum and was so captivated by her story. Um, She had such an amazing, amazing story about her mental health journey, and she is a suicide uh, survivor as well as a Christian and woman of God. And I was just so, so captivated by her story. Um, And she recently... got connected with me earlier this year, I want to say it was Takia. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to reach out to her about um, being being a guest on the show. And so I'm really, really excited that I get to have her this week. So you all get to hear her amazing story. So Takia, say hey, sis. Hey. So um, before we hop into all of the questions and you talking about all of the amazing things you have done, but as well as your testimony, why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes. So I am a mental health advocate, um, a speaker, um, an author, and also a certified peer recovery specialist. And basically what that is, is it's someone who uses their lived experience of living with a mental health challenge or disorder rather, or a um, substance use disorder, or for some people it could be both a mental health disorder and a substance use disorder. So I use my lived experience to educate, coach, and mentor others who may not be as far along in their recovery And so I do that by supporting a mental health research project um, in the state of Maryland, where I work with individuals who um, struggle with substance use, but also live with bipolar disorder, depression, PTSD, schizophrenia. Um, And so, yeah, that's some of what I do. And you also have a podcast called Fire. Oh, I forgot about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, girl, talk about it. So tell us a little about your podcast too. 
Yeah, so Fireflies Unite with Kia is a mental health podcast from the perspective of individuals living with a mental health diagnosis. I focus on individuals of color because I want to make sure that people of color have a voice, that we're sharing our stories. And so the podcast was birthed out of a really dark place because I heard that there were there were and are so many great podcasts out there, but they were often from the therapist perspective. So I wanted to provide the consumer perspective. And so that's what the podcast is all about, mental health and wellness. That's so good. So take us all the way back. So all the way back from when you first started your therapy experience, but even a little bit before that. So take us back before you were um, starting therapy. And I, and I know you also had a hospitalization. So take us back and tell us that story. Yeah. So I would say for about like nine months straight, I was thinking about end of my life and I was fighting to not give into those thoughts. And before I knew it, I could no longer suppress the thoughts, no matter how hard I tried. They were just always at the forefront. And how long ago I, was this? That was, wow, that was in 2015, it was, I believe. So February of 2015 is when I had my suicide attempt. But in 2014, around September of 2014, I believe it was, when I just was really struggling and I was extremely depressed, not able to get up out of bed, often having body aches, like unexplained body aches, not really sure, Um, would go for days without eating or without taking care of my hygiene and just being stuck in the bed for days at a time. And I was got to the point where one day I had texted a friend and I just told her it would be better if I wasn't here. And at the time, I did not know that that friend contacted the police. I just knew that the police showed up and broke into my window um, because at that time I had taken some pills and I was hoping that I would just like pass away like peacefully or like in my sleep. And the police showed up and um, broke through the window and just started asking me some questions. I don't remember all the questions, but I know one of the questions they asked me was, um, do you want to hurt yourself? And I said, like, basically, I did, but I'm not sure if it's working. And so they were like, you're, you know, you're a threat to yourself um, because you're, you know, you cause harm to yourself. So we're going to have to either call the paramedics to come transport you or we're going to have to handcuff you and take you. So I agreed to have the paramedics to transport me. And when I got to the hospital, I was evaluated and I was was on suicide watch. And that's really when my mental health journey started. But I will say that I started therapy maybe six months before that, but I was so frustrated with the therapy process at the time that I just stopped going because I was like, this is not, I don't even know if this is working. Like, I don't want to be here because I I guess I, at that time, maybe I thought like I was supposed to be quote unquote fixed opposed to your therapist actually guiding you. Um, And so 
I really wasn't, I knew somewhat what therapy was, but most people have this idea that therapy, your therapist is supposed to fix you and figure out all your problems for you when that's not how therapy works. Right. And so since I became frustrated with the process during that time, and then plus because I was depressed, I didn't have the energy to go. Right. Um, I just stopped going. And so it wasn't until after my hospitalization where I became consistent um, in therapy. So talking about a little bit before then, what were the things that were happening that were causing you to have suicidal thoughts that you can remember? So I will say this. I started struggling with suicidal thoughts around 11 or 12 years old. So it would often come in waves. I remember as a child when the suicide thoughts would come, it was usually around the time I saw my mom being physically or verbally abused. That's usually when I saw, when I started realizing that I always like wanted to die or had thoughts of death. Um, in 2015, I think I had a lot going. I had just graduated with my master's. I was trying to figure out where I, you know, where I was going to work, how I was going to make money. I was stressed out about bills, um, struggling financially, um, and then also had unresolved childhood trauma with my father being in and out of jail and incarcerated, um, with him being on drugs. So that was stuff that I never really dealt with. I never really dealt with my mom being abused and how that impacted me. So I think it was a combination of things that was going on currently, but also like unresolved childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And so initially what made you go to counseling? I think I, a part of me just wanted a part of me wanted to feel better mm -hmm. because I was tired of feeling the way that I was feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and were you at a point where you were in church, like seeking for help? Were you like um, seeking God to understand what was going on? Like what was kind of going on with that within your relationship with God too? Oh no, I, I didn't want to have a relationship with God then because I was angry because the people that were in my life that are Christian, they would say things that would actually make things worse. Like, don't take the medication. It's going to make you worse. I know medication made other people feel worse. Um, I've uh, heard things like just talking tongues for 15 minutes or speaking tongues for 15 minutes a day. Your depression will go away. So Things like that, it really pushed me away from the church, but ultimately pushed me away from God because I didn't want to have anything to do with God or people in the church or church, nothing at all. I was so, because I felt like I was not, I wasn't being heard. I felt like I wasn't oh, yeah. understood. So at that time, I really was questioning if God was even real. Yeah. And so a combination of unresolved trauma feeling as though, like, especially in a faith walk, like, not really feeling accepted, heard, supported, loved, um, the things that you were trying to do to help seemed bad. It was just all a combination of all those things at once. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, okay, so you get to the hospital and you started your process in going to therapy. What was that like? Yeah, so in the beginning, it was really hard because I realized that I had to show up for myself, that mm. the therapist was not going to fix me. The therapist was there to guide me 
and to be a person in the passenger seat, but I was the driver in my healing process. Mm-hmm. So it was hard Girl, because I- that's a whole baby. <laughs> that's a whole situation. Let me put, let me backtrack with you. So before you even got to that point, what, especially since you had just had a suicide attempt, then came to the hospital to basically be on suicide watch. What was the mental space that you were in that made you make the decision that I need to do something differently? Well, when I was in the hospital, I will say this, they would not let me leave until I had agreed on what my treatment would be like after I left the hospital. So after I was released from the hospital, I went to a step, like a step down called a partial hospitalization program. Mm -hmm. Some people call it intensive outpatient. Mm -hmm. So I was at the hospital once I was discharged from the inpatient. I went to this outpatient program where I was at the hospital for six or seven hours a day for like a month straight. And I had to go through intense therapy like for seven hours a day, that is a lot. Mm. Um, and so during that process, I started, since I was in therapy all day long, Monday through Friday, there were things about myself that I started to learn. There were coping skills that I started to learn. And then from there, they were like, well, when you leave this program, we have to, you have to stay connected with a the therapist because there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And so I knew that I wanted to go back to the therapist that I was seeing. And so when I left the program, I went to continue to see my therapist. But I think the biggest thing that was going through my mind during that time was, will things ever get better? Because I couldn't see how things would get better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so there was like some level of self-awareness you were building as you were going to impact to the outpatient intensive therapy, but it was still that feeling of, is this going to really be a change because your your previous experience with counseling was so much about nothing's changing, nothing's being fixed. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So tell us about the process then when you did start going back to counseling and how long had you been in counseling up until that point? I mean, well, actually up until now. So actually, September of 11th of this year makes five years that I've been with the same therapist. Mm -hmm. And we've done some phenomenal work. Like, I love my therapist to death. She is awesome. She's gone above and beyond for me. Um, And this process has not been easy at all. But I can say that I'm so much better because I went through it. Like mm-hmm. I always say that working on your working on myself has been harder than my degree from Howard University and Georgetown University. Girl, girl like yes. <laughs> talk about it because <laughs> that's the part where I think people like, especially as someone who has a background in counseling and went to school for it, but also someone who has went as like you said a consumer. I didn't realize, even as a practitioner, the amount of mental strain it causes on your clients to pull up all of those things. Like, I think we talk about it in school, but we never really, like, delve into how hard it is for someone to open up old wounds and build their self-awareness, talk about very, very, very 
deep rooted trauma. And when you actually are doing the work, it's not fun. It's not fun at all. It is so heart wrenching and it brings up things that you did not realize about yourself in a way that is like a mirror up to yourself. Absolutely. Like I think one of the things that I have learned during this process is that my trauma is not, is not my fault. The things that happened to me is not my fault, but I am responsible for my healing. So I can't, I can continue to be a victim or I can do something about it. And the, the biggest piece, like you talked about self-awareness, so many people don't realize that the things that has, the things that they've gone through that they have yet to deal with is playing out every single day in their relationships at work. People don't realize that it's a ripple effect. So when you're wondering why someone is always nasty or always rude or angry, why someone is always so bitter or why someone is so filled with drama all of the time, not realizing that there's a connection to something that they have yet to deal with. And so one of the things that therapy has helped me with is connect those dots. Not saying that I was a nasty or mean person, but it started making me realize like, for instance, one of the things that I, I struggled with was like body image. Um, and I used to really think about like, I used to take showers in the dark because I didn't want to look at not necessarily my body, but like my stomach. I was always very insecure about my stomach. So like I used to take showers in the dark and one of the things that my therapist uh, gave me an assignment to do was look at myself naked. And I was like, she's crazy. I'm not doing that. <laughs> so, <laughs> but one day I did. And I remember it was like, I remember saying to myself, like, I'm sorry for not honoring you, but I thank you for, I thank you for getting me this far, like talking to my body. And during that moment, that was when I first started to like accept all of me and really start this journey of like healing and love. Because I remember just going back to being a little girl at seven years old, telling my mom, like, I need Jenny Craig. Um, so that, it, that those challenges with my, or those, how I viewed my, my stomach, um, and how I viewed my stomach was something that has always been on my mind all the time. Always. I remember like, even like with dating, like not wanting to be intimate. Of course you shouldn't be if you're not married anyway, but I would always not want to go that far because I'm like, I'm struggling with my body. Mm -hmm. like if I can't even love my own body how can I expect someone else to yes mm -hmm. so that was always very challenging for me and so but what therapy has helped me to do is get to the point of like accepting all of me every aspect of my life and it's really started my healing journey because now like there is this certain level of not just awareness, but this confidence that I have because I took the time to do the work and heal. It's almost as if we go to what I call is the dismantling process. Like we completely dismantle who we grew up thinking we were 
and really like seeing who we were or seeing who we're created to be from going through all of that digging up. And what happens is you really see your true identity in yourself. And it's never a process that is over. Just like, like you've been with your therapist for five years. I left counseling after two years and then went back this year. And so it's been, it's coming to come up to a three-year process per se for me. It's never a stopping place because you're going to go through so many transitions. Um, and I think that's the part that we have to know is it's like, I always say you went through, for me, it was, I went through 27 years of life and really only talked about that in two years. All that life that I lived shaped who I was and my identity of who I was all throughout that time. All the time I didn't have support, all the time I had daddy issues, all the time I really like struggled with God. And so it was it's, it was and still is a process to even work through. So for you kind of having that confidence, how do you feel like your identity towards yourself is now? Hmm, that's a great question. <laughs> how do still I feel learning? Like- yeah, so how do I feel? What's the question again? <laughs> having like having the confidence that you have now cuz I think when you have self-awareness, when you can understand your triggers, uh and even kind of going through different transitions, you have a sense of knowing who you are. So how do you think your identity about yourself has shifted especially now? Yeah, I think before I thought I knew who I was, but I really didn't. It wasn't until, I mean, most recently, just because I've been in therapy for five years that I really started to discover and unpack who I was because I've always been very goal-oriented, very driven, like always like working and striving towards success. That was kind of my way of dealing with my trauma was like, oh, I need to focus on accomplishing things. Facts. I need to be successful. Facts. Which is not a bad thing, but if you're doing that as a way to not deal with you, to deal with things, then that's a challenge because then I'm not taking the time to actually go through my healing process. I'm not taking the time to identify what my triggers are. I'm not taking the time to figure out what are healthy coping skills because at this at that time, I was just using like on being, for lack of a better word, like addicted to accomplishments and success. So that way I wouldn't have to deal. Now I'm still the same person that's very goal oriented and driven. But the difference now is that I can look back. I can, at this time, I can say that there's a sense of wholeness that I have that I didn't have before. And I truly believe that being whole is our God-given birthright, but the only way we can do that if we're willing to do the work. And I didn't even know what wholeness felt like because being broken was a part of my norm. So now I'm like, wow, this is what it feels like to be whole. This is what it feels like to be self-aware because there are people who are twice my age who are not self-aware. Girl, that part? (laughs) Sis, and and really are 
in their ways and think they're right. Not to say that they're wrong, but baby. Right. Don't know that they're triggered by things. Don't know mm-hmm. that their experiences shape the way they talk to people. Don't know that the way they react is unhealthy. Twice yeah. our age, sis. Twice, yeah. There were relationships and people in my life that I had to let go of or relationships that naturally dissolve or I grew apart from people because they weren't doing their own work and I couldn't have that in my life. And it's not our responsibility for anybody. It's not our responsibility to do anybody else's inner work for them. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. So talk about how therapy helps you within your relationship with God. Yeah. So I think now is, that's a great question. I think now that I've been in therapy for so long and with my relationship with God is realizing that God can also speak through my therapist. And that doesn't mean that my therapist has to be a Christian because quite frankly, I don't know what my therapist's religion is. (laughs) You don't really? She hasn't said anything. I've never asked. I don't know. Like, but that doesn't mean that. They have a way of keeping things from us. Right. But half or nothing about them. Yeah. I've never asked her, but it doesn't, I personally don't care and it doesn't bother me because we've done some great work together. And that doesn't mean God can't uh, work through her to get certain messages and things to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I learned is that just like if I was to break my leg, I would have to go to the hospital to get an x-ray, to get a cast and yep. probably use crutches. Yep. And the thing is, it would be like, okay, well, God's going to work through the doctors at the hospital. One of the things that I learned is that therapy doesn't have to be separate from God. Like a lot of times you feel like it's therapy and it's like, oh no, then there's God, there, then there's your relationship with God. Now, of course there are Christian counselors if people prefer that. But one of the things that I've learned in my relationship with God is that God has been there the entire time in the therapy process. Yes, yes, yes. Girl, uh, (laughs) yes. Okay, keep going. I'm sorry. So yes, God has been there. Like he's never left me in that therapy process. Those times where I've, I've cried my eyes out, those times where the light bulb started going off, these were things that God were has have been trying to reveal to me, but I couldn't have got those gotten those things out on my own. He needed someone to use someone to guide me. Yeah. And now that I've my relationship with God is stronger because I was like, wow, it doesn't have to be separate. Um, therapy and my relationship with God, they both can coexist. And yeah. that's one of the things that I've learned. So what switched for you knowing from a place of where you were so angry with God and the people that were supportive to you or quote unquote supportive to you during the time where you were going through uh, suicide ideations and then kind of going from a place of now where you have a strong relationship with God, what was the switch for you? Well, I think part of that was that God started to place uh, Christians in my life who were also therapists. Mm. 
that had became friends to me. That's good. So they were super supportive. There's two, um, Sharon Lawrence and Dr. Anita Phillips. They're both Christians and they're Mm -hmm. both, and they're both like big sisters to me. And yeah, God placed them in my life. And I was like, wow, okay. So there are Christian therapists and both of these things can coexist. And God is real for me because at the time I was like, I'm not sure if he's, if he's real, because I'm like, if God is real, then why is all this happening to me? Not realizing it's not happening to me, it's happening for me, which is a difference. Mm -hmm. And so when he started placing people in my life, that's when I believe he started using them to make those connections. And I slowly started rebuilding my relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so good. And that's so good that that like those people were strategically placed at a time where you could get the perspective of mental health in a very biblical way and in a way that really embodied the body of Christ and the support that actually comes from when we support and love each other. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's really good, sis. So, okay. So how did this process and experience spark your passion for mental health? Yeah, I think my, this a few things because I think initially I started writing about my experiences on a platform called The Mighty. And I started realizing how freeing it was to write about my experiences and to have people comment that can relate to me. And so that was one of the things that helped me was writing. And then from there, I started saying like, well, maybe I can speak about this. Maybe I could be over here speaking at conferences, at churches, because maybe my story can help someone else. And from writing, it became speaking. And then from speaking, then it became podcasting. And then it became a book. Um, And I started realizing that the biggest thing, my background is in production. So my background is in communications and production. And I was always trying to figure out how can I merge my communication and production skills and ex- professional experiences that I've had? How can I merge that for, with mental health? And so a way for me to do that was, of course, writing, um, of course, with journalism. Of course, that was also with podcasting and, um, and speaking. And so that was really what sparked it was because I was trying to figure out a way how to merge my new passion with men, for mental health, and then my communication skills. So you ended up taking that passion and moving it into podcasting to where you could actually talk about it more and be able to share more stories about your experience. And, yes. so, and so since then, what has been birthed? Like you talked about writing was one, then it turned into speaking and then it turned into podcasting. How is this whole experience birthed this assignment and calling out of you? What do you mean? <laughs> Girl, <laughs> just from like, so how did all of this kind of get you to the point to where now you're serving people in this capacity? And like, how has that experience shaped what you share with them, 
shape what you do with them? And what have you seen, like, what has the response been from you doing all of this? So it's so interesting you say that. I think one of the things that comes up for me is like, in my role as a certified peer recovery specialist, I have gone through intensive training um, to of through these trainings, um, through also working one-on-one with individuals, but realizing that by when I'm sharing my story, I'm helping show someone else that recovery is possible. Because a lot of times people don't think that it is. That's so good. Because we get stuck in our trauma sometimes. We get stuck in kind of like this hamster wheel and going through the same things or sometimes getting so stuck that we're realizing like, or feel like, is in, are things ever going to get better? And so when I'm working with individuals, I'm off, I'm sharing my story because I want to let them know like I'm someone who had to give up her apartment because I was hospitalized and I couldn't live by myself because I didn't know if I was going to have another suicide attempt. Also because I could not work. I was that severely depressed that I could not have a job and that I had to apply for disability. Um, I, you know, for almost, almost two, two to two and a half years. So to go from that to now being able to have an apartment, to be able to do all the things that I'm doing, I can show them like, yeah, it is possible. It may not look the same for you, but recovery, it looks different on every single person. And so I've been seeing that the individuals that I have been working with, they have been becoming more um, independent and self-sufficient because all of them they receive disability benefits from the government. So a lot of times when people are on disability, they have a fear of getting off because they're like, if I'm not on disability, then what does that look like for me? Or what if I get sick again? Can I get it again? Um, or I need to stay on disability and not do anything else. And so now they, there are individuals now, there's a young man who I work with who battles with schizophrenia and depression. And so... Of course, we know with schizophrenia, there's the delusions and hallucinations, hearing things and seeing things. This individual now is returning to school, um, having a passion for writing and not even, he's been working with therapists, job coaches, and he have a, he has a passion for writing. And none of his therapists or anyone on his treatment team could not get him to write anything, but he said he had a passion for writing. I've worked with him for a couple of months and he wind up writing me an article. And they were trying to figure out, this may seem like something so small, but to, but to someone who has struggled with um, delusions and hallucination and paranoia and who has been depressed, this was a milestone in their recovery. And now they're, they're actually going, getting ready to go to school. So things like that or helping individuals who was living in a residential facility now helping them there. One of the individuals that I'm working with is now moving out into her own apartment. Girl, so that's so good. It's like little things like that to that we take for granted that some people take for granted and don't realize someone can easily have, someone who may have an apartment may not think twice about it. 
but to someone who has a disability, specifically with uh, mental health challenges, it's a milestone for them. And so I have been able to work with individuals and really help them with that. And that has been, it has been extremely rewarding. This is, I would say the most rewarding work that I've done because I'm not a therapist, nor do I want to be a therapist, but I'm grateful that I can use my experiences to mentor and coach others in their recovery process. And you said an interesting point about the fact that just taking that story of that young man or someone else, like we may take for granted, but I don't think, especially someone who, who understands having had worked with people who have suffered like really um, challenging mental health issues, those little small wins are so huge in their life. Like being able, I remember I was working with a client once who literally struggled with getting out of the bed to brush her teeth every day. She only left the house to come to her appointment with me pretty much. That was all she did. And so for her to get her to even like take a, have the routine of brushing her teeth, taking a shower and putting clothes on for the day was a huge win because there are people who struggle with such depression that it is such a challenge to do those very small tasks. And so to see that impact from your experience, like, like you said, that's probably the most rewarding thing. And that's phenomenal. Phenomenal. You probably got stories for days, girl. (laughs) I do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, um, and so kind of going into just for your process in particular, what would you say, what, besides therapy, what was, what other things were the most pivotal for you in your process? The support of my family and friends. I do, I will say I have a great support system, but my support system didn't know how to help me. And I didn't even know how to tell them what help I, what I needed. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I started therapies that I, that I started realizing okay, I need to tell people how they can help me because people are not my readers and I can't make the assumption that they should know. So I would say my family and my friends have been super supportive. Um, They've come to my speaking engagements. They've um, have started, some of them have started going to therapy on their own because because they realized how it was how I had changed and also started realizing certain things that they needed to work on. Um, And I'm so grateful for the support system that I have because I realized that I'm extremely blessed because not every person has a support system. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would definitely say in addition to, of course, God, I would say second would have have to be my support system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how did they, in what ways practically did they support you? So that would be coming to my house unannounced. Um, I don't like surprise visits, but if someone hasn't heard from me in two days, I have a rule with my friend. If she hasn't heard from me in two days, um, I'm like, you have a key, come over and check on me. Mm. Make sure I'm okay. Um, and is it still that, like that to this day? Yes, it is. Like, I'm like, if, if you haven't heard from me, people will pop up at my house. They will. And they have even most recently, like maybe about five or six weeks ago, they popped up. They were like, we haven't heard from you in a week. So we just came over to make sure you're okay. 
Um, and that's a blessing because sometimes I don't, I may not say, I may not say to someone, I really need you here because the thing is for me, sometimes that is, there isn't anything to talk about or sometimes I don't want to talk about anything because it's not that there's anything, that there's anything going on. I've been struggling with depression since I was 12. It's just for me, sometimes it's just a way of life. It's something that I accept that I may have, that I'll have to struggle with for the rest of my life unless God decides, oh, well, she doesn't need that struggle anymore. I'll happily accept that. But the reality is that may not happen. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really grateful that I have people that I can tell them that I don't want to talk about anything or there's nothing for me to talk about. But what I do need for you is just come and sit with me. People don't realize how much their presence means. And for me, sometimes I just need somebody physically there we don't have to talk we can watch tv we can lay in my bed together i just need you physically here that's all i need Mm -hmm. and so that has been the way that people have supported me or even sometimes they'll be like did you eat do i need to drop um, off food for you or do you want to come over my house and spend the night so you're not home by yourself that is so good because like Girl, I'm so glad you said that because I don't think we realize that support doesn't have to look like saying the right thing, always knowing how to save or anything of that nature. Your simple presence, your simple hug, like those things go so far when I remember when I used to really struggle with isolation and depression I would purposely, purposely tell my friends, don't call me. Like, I don't want to talk. And I had a, I had one friend who would literally make her way to try to always make sure she saw me or some way, like making sure she got some type of contact with me. And I didn't realize till later on, she was just like, I just wanted to make sure you were okay, even if you didn't say something was wrong and like how much that means to someone who is struggling because most times when you're in that space you don't know how to verbalize what's wrong you don't know how to verbalize what the trigger was you don't know necessarily how to verbalize what got you to that point and so I think just like you said simple presence can be a huge support to someone yeah Okay. So, so kind of switching gears into more recent talk about for you and is definitely as much as you want to share your recent diagnosis and how that has been um, an adjustment for you, but also has brought clarity to you within your mental health. Yeah. So the recent diagnosis of changing from major depressive disorder to bipolar disorder has been interesting because Mm -hmm. When you think of bipolar disorder, I feel like depression and anxiety disorders are more accepted than like bipolar or schizophrenia. Mm. Um, and and, and I really even more un- feel like people feel like they understand that more because it's like we hear depression, anxiety all the time, but we don't hear bipolar, schizophrenia like way more commonly. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so I didn't really want to have that label because I remember when they, when they diagnosed me, I was like, no, that can't be right because 
I wasn't, ex I, I thought about the extreme. I thought about like spending money um, and going into debt or like some people, you know, like having, being in, engaging in risky behaviors, like, you know, unprotected sex mm -hmm. or drugs and alcohol. Like I thought about the extreme, not realizing, of course, there's bipolar one, there's bipolar two. So not realizing that I just was more so on a, for lack of a better word, a lower scale or a, a less, ver a smaller version of, I guess, the bipolar disorder that I it didn't have to be extreme because bipolar disorder looks different on every single person. And so for me, I think the biggest thing that I started learning was like, when I was in like a manic state, like walking really fast and not realizing like that that was a part of, for bipolar two, like hypomania. And my mom started pointing that out to me and like having days of not being able to sleep or sleeping very little and doing like 5,000 things at one time. I thought that was just a part of me being goal oriented, like, and it still is, but not sleeping for days at a time is not healthy. Mm -hmm. And so things slowly started making sense to me, but at times I'm still like, this can't be right. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like it's just because with bipolar disorder, some people may be more depressed, but only thing they need is that one manic episode to get the bipolar diagnosis. And so I spend more time, way more time in depression than I do with um, a hypomanic state. And I'm still learning to accept it to this day, honestly. Mm -hmm. what, what was going on at the time that got you to be evaluated for that diagnosis? Well, I was suicidal and I was depressed. That I did know. Um, and I had, I recently went into a intensive outpatient program in February of this year. And I was, I decided to go because going to therapy once a week wasn't doing it. I realized I needed, I needed intensive treatment. And so that's when I decided to go uh, to contact my therapist. And I just told her I need a higher level of care because seeing you once a week is not helping me right now. Mm -hmm. So I went in and when I went, was admitted into the intensive patient program, I, that's when I got the bipolar diagnosis. Mm, okay. Okay. And then from following the inpatient care, that's when you, uh, did you transition back into seeing your therapist once a week? Yes. I transitioned into seeing my therapist once a week and also getting a new psychiatrist because I didn't feel like my current psychiatrist was... I didn't feel hurt. Mm. Yeah. And even for that, like, how was that for you? Like transitioning with psychiatrists? Because I think, and, and this isn't something that um, people talk about, because for those of you that don't know, psychiatrists are MDs, so they are doctors, but they specialize in psychotropic medications, which is basically any type of medication that deals with any type of disorder, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, any diagnosis. And so they can prescribe 
medication versus a therapist or LPC licensed social worker or licensed therapist can't provide medication, but they can refer you to a psychiatrist. And so you have two different um, people that manage your care related to mental health if you are taking medications. So how is that for you switching psychiatrists and even kind of in the middle of learning your dis learning uh your diagnosis and also doing medication management like what was that like for you and how did you advocate for yourself well so with the previous psychiatrist i mean he would ask me questions but for some reason there was like this disconnect um and then also when the medication stopped working honestly i didn't even realize the medication stopped working Sometimes I've been struggling with depression for so long that sometimes depression feels like a home because I'm so used to it that sometimes I forget what it feels like to feel good because depression is just sometimes the norm or the way of life for me. And when I went into the uh, program, I remember telling them, I do not want to see the psychiatrist that I have. I need you to help me to find a new one when I leave here and they did. And when I, the new psychiatrist has been really, she's been good. Um, she, she was, I remember her actually suggesting a new medication for me because when I was in the hospital, well, the partial hospitalization program, they only put me on one medication. And I remember her saying like, I think you need, we need to add something else because you're not getting the full relief from just this one medication, you're still struggling. And I did not want to get on another medication. I was like, I, no, I'm fine with taking this one tablet. I do not like taking my medication, to be honest. Um, but I know that I need to. Mm -hmm. And so when she, it took me about a month to agree to this other medication. And so I researched it and I was like, I need to see what this medication is for. I need to figure out how is it going to impact me? Um, is it going to make me gain weight? Because I told her, I was like, if I have to pick between being fat or depressed, I'm going to pick being depressed. <laughs> if you said I feel you, okay? <laughs> so she said, okay, well, let's try this. And I'm so glad that I, that I did because for the past two weeks, um, the cloud that has been over me has been lifting. And... I'm like, wow. And I think it's, it's starting to help me to accept my bipolar diagnosis because the medication is specifically for people who have bipolar disorder. Um, but it also helps people that have seizures too, but it's also used to treat bipolar disorder. And I'm like, okay, maybe it's just not depression for me anymore. Maybe this is it, but I'm still, like I said, in that space of trying to accept it because I think it's important for people to realize that just because your diagnosis doesn't look the same as someone else doesn't mean that you don't still have that diagnosis. Right, exactly. And 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 briefly before we wrap up to give your personal perspective as well as you know your personal perspective on medication. Because that is something it, that's not talked about, especially like in general, Christians going to counseling is something that's coming up a lot. 
um, recently, but now even more medicine becomes this like taboo conversation. So even for you, what has that been like as a consumer and someone who has, um, that is currently taking medication that is Christian? Um, what is that like for you? And what's your personal take on that? Yeah. So I think if we have a headache, we're quick to top a quick to pop an Advil or Tylenol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. I have to realize, and I tell myself this all the time, it's okay that you need this medication to function. Because sure I, I physically, physically cannot get out of bed if I don't have this medication. I'm very crippled. I'm, it's debilitating for me. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to work. I wouldn't be able to make money. Like I, I wouldn't be able to do anything. Yeah. So realizing that, again, here's another opportunity that God is working through the, the psychiatrist. It's like, here is something that's going to help you. Here's something that's going to make you feel better. And that doesn't mean that you're weak because, or you lack faith in God just because you need medication to help you. We don't tell people with diabetes that they're weak because they need insulin. Mm -hmm. So why would you tell someone who has a mental health challenge that they're weak or they lack faith in God because they need medication? It's the same thing. I always say this. That's why I titled my book Saved and Depressed because just like people can be saved and have diabetes and need insulin, you can be saved and depressed or saved with bipolar disorder and need medication too. Yep. Yep. And one thing I used to tell my clients when I worked in... um, community mental health was if you physically need the medication to function, take it. And here's the thing too, you can always get off of it when you are progressing in in treatment, if that's what you need to do. But don't feel as if this makes you crazy, because that was one of the things when I primarily service African Americans, they felt as though medication is for crazy people, medication is for crazy people. And I would say, but when you take it, you feel better. When you take it, you you don't have to go into this um, manic phase or go into delusions because a lot a lot of the kid a lot of the uh, clients I was seeing was suffering from schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and so and depression. And so it is not a bad thing. And like you said, we don't lack faith in God because we have to take that. And so I'm so glad you brought that up because that is something that people don't talk about at all as a means of being part of our treatment. Right. And I think and also realizing that another part is it's okay if you do need the medication for the rest of your life. Cause I honestly personally had a goal of getting off my medication. I did at one point I was off of it and then it didn't work out for me very well, mm-hmm. but I would like that to be in my near future, but if it's not, I also have to accept that I may need it for the rest of my life. And that's okay too. And I'm still learning to accept that too. And that doesn't mean we lack purpose. That doesn't mean we lack love from God. That doesn't mean we are stamped off away from him. Like that don't mean nothing at all. So thank you for sharing that piece. Anything else you want to share sis before we close? Only thing I can think of is for your listeners, I would encourage them to get my book, Saved and Depressed, as well as to check out my podcast, Fireflies Unite. And I did not mention, 
the meaning behind the podcast is to bring light into darkness, just like the fireflies. So I say, Beyonce has her beehive, Kia has her fireflies. And that's, the period. <laughs> that's the name of my community, just because I want us to continue to bring light into darkness, because so many times when we're going through these challenges, we often feel like we're in the dark because we are isolating. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Thank you so much, sis, for your testimony, your story, and all the amazing things you shared. I will leave all Sakia's information in the show notes for you all. Make sure you follow her on Instagram. Make sure you buy her book. And definitely, definitely check out her podcast. And if you have any questions, let me know, and I'll see y'all next week. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.